Thank you so much, Greg. That's uh, we got just the perfect timing there because that's that's the line I really wanted to get, and not as one who kneels because that's that's a famous line or it's a famous uh, song, I should say. Not so much a famous line, but in this famous song, I did it my way. Is that one line, and we we introduced it last week. We played the entire song last week, and that one line, as not one who kneels. It get, comes across as, I'm going to do things my way. And we have this fierce independence as America, or as Americans, to be, I'm going to do things my way. I won't bend the knee to anyone. And when you think about worship, we gather today, and we worship God. And when you think about worship, what is it? What is worship? What are you doing during worship? Sometimes, and I think actually oftentimes, we think of worship as like this emotional reaction that we have to God. And so when we engage in worship, we engage in something that, that we want to make us feel good. I want to worship, and I want this emotional reaction, and I just want to feel good about my worship. And I know some people that they, they even choose a church just strictly upon the aesthetics and the feel of worship, and whether or not they're going to cry during worship. We used to run a summer camp. And during that summer camp, I mean, the worship time would be amazing. But we, you know, we'd dim the lights. And, and some of the worship leaders, they just knew how to engage emotion. And by the end, kids would be crying and singing and lifting their hands. And one of the speakers one year was like, y'all are coming here and you're smoking your Jesus joint and you're leaving. And what he meant by that is you're coming here and you're feeling good about yourself. You're, you're getting this emotional reaction, but you're not really thinking about God. You're just coming in. You're feeling good. And then when you leave, do you even think about God again? So he'd say, you're smoking your Jesus joint. Then you leave. So when you come to worship, are you smoking your Jesus joint? What does it look like the rest of the week? Now, some of us have had that, and we've had that emotional experience, and we've, we've experienced that, and then we go home, and we're like, but, but what has it left me but empty in the end? And so some of us then start to turn from that emotional experience, and we think, worship is all academic. As long as I get the lyrics right, as long as I you know, can, can sing some proper theology, then my worship experience will be good. Even if my heart's not in it. I don't want to smoke a Jesus joint, so I'm going to go the opposite route. Which way do you bend? What do you think about worship? That's what we're going to study today as we open up to Psalm 95. So we've been doing this series, Summer in the Psalms. We're just examining the Psalms here in September, we're going to switch up and we're going to do a hopeful living. So it's not hopeful, but hope, F-U-L-L, full living. That's what we'll start in September. But during the summer, we're doing Summer in the Psalms. And we started, uh, last week we hit on Psalm 93, which is called a magisterial psalm. The magisterial psalms come all the way up to Psalm 100. And they're all about God as King. And so as we continue to walk through this Summer in the Psalm, we're going to talk about God as King. And that we want to do it his way, not my way. And one of my hopes is that every time you hear that song throughout the rest of your life, 
Every time you hear that song by Frank Sinatra or maybe someone else that's doing a cover, you'll think about, do I want to do things my way or do I want to do things God's way? So we're looking at the magisterial Psalms. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what's interesting is this psalm starts off as what people typically call a praise psalm. And so there are are theologians that study the psalms, and they start to categorize the psalms, and they see that there's certain patterns throughout them. And this one starts off as a praise psalm. It gives us an exhortation to praise God, and then it gives us the reasons. That follows a typical pattern for a praise psalm. But verse 7 switches things up, and it's like no other praise psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, he stops the exhortation and gets into a totally different arena. We'll cover that when we get to it. Let's start off with, O come, let us sing to the Lord. So he starts off with two different exhortations. And this is the first section of exhortation, and then he'll follow that exhortation with a reason for praising. So, O come. O come is an encouragement, right? Come on together. Let's sing together. O come, all people that know God. It's important for us to recognize that because it is important for us to encourage each other in worship. We should be encouraging each other in worship. Oh, come, gather together, saints. That's what Sunday service is about. Gathering together to encourage one another to glorify God. So gather together, saints. We're coming to, go, to sing to God. This term sing right here is, uh, it is literally shout in excitement. So come on together. Let's encourage each other to gather together and shout in excitement. Have you ever been so excited you just had to shout? Has there ever been a time when you were just so thrilled about something? Go to a sports stadium, and you see it, don't you? People that just get so excited when that wide receiver caught a touchdown in the dying seconds of the game to win it all. And what does everybody do? Shouts with excitement. That's what, that's what he's getting at here. That should be our reaction here. It's not just let us sing. Sometimes when we think of praise, what do we think of? We think of something that's really boring, and we're going to sing this boring song to God that talks about how much we love him. I sing it in kind of a monotone because I'm a horrible singer, just so you know. It's, uh, but but that's, sometimes that's how we think of worship. And this is an encouragement here to shout in excitement. 
So we should see that, that there, is emo- there should be some emotion involved. Those of us who have gotten burned on the Jesus joint aspect of worship, that doesn't mean we can just throw emotion out the door. There should be some excitement, some emotion involved in our worship. So sing to the Lord. Shout in excitement to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Joyful noise here means like a heartfelt noise. So we've got this shouting and excitement, but it's not just shouting and excitement for the sake of shouting and excitement. It's this heartfelt thing. Worship shouldn't be something that we just do because that's what the tradition tells us to do. It's not you just show up and you go through the routine and you do the thing everything else, everyone else is doing. Worship is heartfelt. And we're going to start to see a theme here of our heart because worship involves the heart. And from our heart, of our actions will flow. From our heart, our actions will flow. This has tremendous application as Christians. I hear guys all the time complain about how this woman dressed this way made him lust after her. And that's a false thought. It's absolutely ridiculous. That woman did not make you lust. You had a heart issue. And she gave you an opportunity to let that heart issue come out. I hear people all the time say, so-and-so made me so angry. False. No one made you angry. You have a heart that is angry. So-and-so gave you the opportunity to let that anger out. It's so important for us to grasp. From our heart comes our actions. And if you're lusting after women, guess what, men? You have a heart issue. If you're yelling in anger, guess what? You have a heart issue. And if you're singing praises to God, it should be heartfelt. It should be revealing something about your heart. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. So this term, his presence, literally means let us stand face to face with him. Let us come and have this intimate relationship with him. It's the difference between going to a rock concert and you know sitting in the nosebleed section and looking way down at the artist and seeing him and singing along with him and thinking, yeah, I really know that guy. Versus going out on an intimate date with somebody. Robin and Larry just celebrated their 50th. It's so exciting. Yeah. I think it's really important to mention that kind of stuff. Uh, And I know Larry doesn't like to, to hear any type of praise, so I'm not praising you, Larry. But I think it's really important to mention because it gives us younger people hope that you can have a happy, healthy marriage of 50 years. And part of that comes from that intimacy. They spend time together. They go on dates together. They know each other. And that's kind of what he's getting at here. It's not not that we are looking at God from afar, hoping that we can get to know him one day, but that we can have a personal relationship with him and we can stand face to face with our creator, our maker. 
So let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. So not only do we stand face to face with Him, but we can be thankful. We can appreciate the things that He has done. We can recognize and appreciate the things that He has done for us. The changes that He has made in our lives. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. So here we are again, making this heartfelt noise, shouting to Him in excitement with songs of praise. So, I'm not a great singer. I cannot clap and sing at the same time. Uh, There are some times when I decide that because I'm not a great singer and if other people are clapping, I will decide to stop singing and just focus in on the clapping. Because I can't do both, and since one's bad already, I might as well focus in on the other, right? Now that is still coming together and being encouraged by the rest of the congregation, and I have a part to play in that song. Notice it's not make chaos to God. Part of what what our worship team is striving to do is be distraction-free. Not to create a bunch of distraction that all we're doing is focusing in on the distraction of the music. But they're taking away the distractions so that we can focus in on coming into His presence, making an exciting noise, or being excited enough to make a noise, a heartfelt noise, to God. Even if your voice isn't that great. I cannot carry a tune. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm tone deaf. I'm sorry, Amanda, she sat next to me and I was like, singing very quietly, so I didn't, I didn't have an excited shout. But we can still sing a heartfelt noise to God, even when we're not great singers. For those of you who are a little bit better, maybe you can sing a little bit louder. So then verse 3, 4. 4 gives us the reason, right? So there's this exhortation, come, let us worship, let us sing these heartfelt praises. There is an emotion. We see that there is an emotion that should be stirring up some worship. It should not be emotionless. It should not be emotionless. Worship should have some emotion to it. And then he gives us the reason. For the Lord is great. And we've talked about it before, but I'll say it again. Anytime you see LORD in all caps in the Old Testament, that's, that's Yahweh. That's how we have translated Yahweh, right? So, let us, for Yahweh is a great God. And a great king above all gods. Now, some people might say, wait a second. I'm not buying into this Greek mythology or Roman mythology or Norse mythology. We don't believe in other gods. Neither did the writers of the Old Testament. Neither did the psalmist here. What he's getting at here is he is living in a culture that does believe in other gods. And what he's trying to emphasize is that God is more powerful than any other force out there. And we can recognize that there are other forces. There's forces of nature, right? We talked last week about flooding and how water is a powerful force. God is greater than any flooding. God is greater than any natural force. But he's also greater than any spiritual force. Any demonic or satanic force, God is more powerful than. So God is the most powerful force. That's the point he's getting at here. Then he's going to describe 
part of what makes him so powerful. In his hands are the depths on the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. And you'll see this contrast here, right? We've got the depths going down as far as we can, and we've got the heights of the mountain going to the very top. Both of them are his, and he holds them both in his hands. Think about the greatness of God for a second. When we stand at the Grand Canyon and we are in awe, it's just a tiny little crack to God. When we go to the highest mountains, and we don't even need to go to the highest mountains, we can stand in front of Mount Eldon. We don't even need to go to the highest mountains around here. We can stand in front of Mount Eldon and be in awe. And yet, it's still nothing. Just a little pebble for God. And then he's going to contrast the sea and the dry land. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And basically what he's getting at, what the psalmist is getting at with these two contrasts is that God made everything always everywhere. God made everything everywhere. Think about the all-encompassing aspect of that statement. God made everything everywhere. All things are His. So we worship God with emotion because we recognize that He is the most powerful force and we recognize that He is the Creator of all things. And if that doesn't inspire some type of emotion that, that elicits a response to God, then your heart is cold. You've got a hard heart. Recognizing who God is should elicit some type of emotional response. Next, he gives us our second exhortation. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So this O come is actually come inside. So some of your translations will even have that. But most of your translations just have another O come. But there's a slight difference here. And we see a movement here. We see a movement from, oh, come, let's join together to come inside. And it's a movement towards more intimacy. So recognizing who God is, his power, should elicit some type of emotional reaction that is in awe of him. But the next movement here is come inside. Come to a greater amount of intimacy with God. And what does this greater amount of intimacy with God produce? Worship. Bow down and kneeling. This term worship means to, it actually means to lay yourself prostate, prostrate in front of God. Not prostate, that's prostrate in front of God. So laying down in an act of submission before God. And then the next two, bow down means to bow yourself at, at the hips before God. Once again, an act of submission. And then the last one is kneel before God, bending the knee before God. So the so this closer intimacy with God produces a greater amount of submission to God, a greater amount of humbleness. You do not bow in front of someone with pride. 
that's one of the reasons why that song, My Way, says, I won't, I won't kneel to anyone, right? I'm not going to kneel to anyone. I have way too much pride in my life to bend the knee to someone or something. Little does he know, though, that we are created to worship, and if we don't bow the knee to God, we will bow the knee to something else, even if it's our own ego. So we see this greater intimacy with God produces more humility and more submission to God. So then verse 7 gives us the reason why. He starts it with four, right? So we've got the second exhortation and we've got the second reason why. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we go from this idea of God being this great creator, the the greatest force to ever exist, that should elicit some type of emotion, to a very personal aspect of God. That he cares for us. That he takes care of us. We are the people of his pasture. He is our God. He's not an impersonal God. Some deity that created the world and left. He's our God. He's personal. And we are the people of His pasture. Meaning not only does He know us, but He cares for us. He watches out for us. He tends to us. And not only are we the people of His pasture, but we are the sheep of his hand. You see the levels of intimacy get closer and closer. It's not just that he's our God, but he's our shepherd. And not only is he our shepherd, but he's our personal shepherd that takes care of us. And what does this do? This should elicit some type of humility in our lives. So we've got these levels, right? We've got this this first level that is an emotional level. We should recognize who God is, and that should elicit some emotional response of awe. And then we've got this recognition that not only is he God in this great force, but he is also very personal with us. And what's interesting is most of the time I think we think that's flipped, right? That when we recognize uh, that he is this great God, this great air force, that should make us more humble. But this psalmist says, no, it's the fact that he is this great God who still cares about us, that should make us more humble. So in humility, we bow the knee to God. In humility, we stop saying, I did it my way, and start saying, I'm going to do it his way. I want to live my life his way. So verse 7, there's four lines, and we've talked a little bit about bicolons and tricolons. What's interesting here, once again, is you've got a tricolon that ends this section, right? And for some reason, you know, with humility, I'm sure I would have messed up a lot of numbering if I was the one to number uh, Scripture, but I probably would have made the end of verse 7 its own verse, because it doesn't quite fit in with verse 9, but it def- or verse 8, but it definitely doesn't fit in with verse 7 because the end here of verse 7, after the tricolon, starts a new topic. 
today if you hear his voice. So we've got a, a new topic, but what's interesting about this and why this psalm is so fascinating to me is we've got the exhortation to worship. We've got the second exhortation to worship. And this third exhortation, I believe, is also a type of worship. Now, he doesn't say, oh, come, let us sing to him again or let, let us bow before him. But what is the, the movement here in worship? It's to listen. It's to hear his voice. It, worship goes from us having this emotional reaction to God, shouting with excitement, to humility and bowing down to him, to recognizing that we need to listen. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about my reaction. It's simply to listen. So this next section is going to be a description of Deuteronomy or, or Numbers and Deuteronomy, what happened during the wilderness wandering. And the, the word today here is going to be found throughout, today if you hear his voice, is going to be found throughout Deuteronomy. So if you want to know more, go read Numbers and Deuteronomy. But you're going to find it throughout Deuteronomy, Moses writing to the generation that's getting ready to enter the promised land. So if you remember the story, in Numbers, it's, it's a tale of two generations. It starts off with one generation that watched the miracles of God. They were enslaved in Egypt. They watched all of the plagues. They watched as God parted the Red Sea. They got through the Red Sea and they watched as God collapsed the Red Sea on the Egyptian army. They were fed by manna from heaven. They saw the Shekinah glory of God, the, the cloud that would give them shade by day and the light that, gave the, that would guide them by night. They saw all of this, and then when they get to the border of the promised land, they send in 12 spies and they come back and they say, nah, God's not big enough for that. He just brought us here to die. And so God says, this generation, I'm done with you. You've watched it all. You've seen it all. You've seen my power, you've seen my might, and yet you don't have faith. So you don't get to enter into the promised land. That'll be the next generation. So 40 years they wander. They wander around in the desert for 40 years. And during that time, God still took care of them. But we're going to get a description of that there. So, so we see today, if you hear his voice, and so Deuteronomy is written to the generation that's getting ready to enter the promised land, and it's written, it's really called the second law, it's written as a guide to what they should do as they enter into the promised land, and it's an encouragement to them. So today, he's emphasizing, not, not in the past if you heard his voice, but today, not in the future. Don't, don't look for the future. It's today. God is speaking to you today. Don't wait. If you hear his voice, the term hear it really means heed or pay attention to, which is a little bit different. Some of your translations will say today if you heed his voice. It's a little bit different because I can hear things all the time and not actually pay attention. Ask my wife. She knows. There are times, and it's happened a lot more recently. I don't know. I need to, like, she's shaking her head vigorously right now. I need to figure out, like, why I'm not paying attention as much. But she, we will be engaged in conversation, and she will say something, and I know she's talking to me, and I, I know there is audible, 
vibrations hitting my ear. And I'm looking at her, and then right after she's done, I say, wait, what did you just say? So I'm hearing it, but I'm not really listening, and I'm definitely not heeding it, right? So there's a difference between hearing and heeding or listening to. What this is getting at is it's not just hear, it's really listening to. Are you actually paying attention to God? So this is an encouragement to actually pay attention to. It's not just hear, it's pay attention to God. He's got something he is saying to you, pay attention to God. And don't wait, don't say, I'm going to pay attention to God in the future. You know, when I get my ducks in a row, that's when I'm really going to listen. No, pay attention today. Listen today. Heed his voice today. That's what he's getting at here. So if you hear, if you heed his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Both of these are water from the rock situations. If you're not familiar with that, there's twice where the Israelites, the, the faithless generation, wandering in the desert, come to Moses and they're like, hey, we don't have any water. Did God just bring us here so that we'd die? Why doesn't he take us back to Egypt? We liked things better in Egypt when we were slaves. And so God gives them water from the rock as a sign of who he is and what kind of authority and power he has. So that's what both of those stories are all about. But both of them are also revealing the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. Once again, these people, they witnessed the miracles. They saw the Red Sea. And then they say, but God, you're just going to let us die now. So do not harden your hearts. Listen. Don't harden your hearts. Don't, Don't build up walls against what God is convicting you of right now. Each one of us have something in our life that God is speaking into. Don't harden your heart to it. When your fathers put me to the test. So this term test here means to find the true nature of something. To find the true nature of something. And I think of it as like dating. You know, when you start, rarely do people meet and get married. One of the reasons why is because they want to know what's real about this other person. On your first date, did you reveal your whole person? Some people did. (laughs) Some people are like, this is me, baby. Take it or leave it. Some guys are like, I want to impress this girl. So I'm going to like clean up really nicely. I might even shave. My car, when Jen and I first started dating, it's not, I drove, uh, it was like a 93 Toyota Tercel, you know, I mean, that was an old car, it was a two-door, and it barely ran. Uh, I had other friends, though, that drove very nice cars, uh, and one of them, actually, what's really funny is one of them, he drove this car, and he had this picture of his girlfriend up on the dash, and I didn't even think about that, but I borrowed his car for our first date. (laughs) And Jen says she got in the car and she was like, she could tell it was like a senior picture. And she was like, man, this guy must really love his youth students because he's got her picture right there on the dash. So I had to explain later that it was not my car at all anyways. But, but oftentimes, you know, when we start dating, we, we like don't put our true self forward. And so part of the dating process is this like 
testing to see who, what is the nature of this person? What's the nature? Before Jen and I even started dating, I got to watch her around kids. Kids will reveal the nature of a, of a person, won't they? So I got to see her nature. So that's the, that's the idea behind this, is this test. What's the real nature of this person? And that's what they were doing to God. They were saying, wait, God, what's your real nature here? Are you, are you actually like the God of the Canaanites who, force us, who want us to sacrifice our own kids? Are you like this other God that, that wants temple prostitution? God, what's your real nature? And the problem God had with that question, the problem God had with that testing is he already revealed his true nature to them. He had already revealed it, and yet they didn't believe it, they didn't trust it, they rejected it, and they said, but wait, what is your real nature? Give me your real nature. And so he's saying, don't harden your hearts and continue to test God like that. And put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And there he's just reinstating this idea that, but they just, they didn't believe me. When I did the miracles in front of them, when I parted the Red Sea, when I provided them, when I provided for them, they still didn't believe. They would never actually put their faith in God. And for this reason, they felt his wrath. He continues in verse 10, For 40 years I loathed that generation. Now when we think of God, we typically don't think of loathing, right? Uh, but here it is. For 40 years I loathed. This term loathe is in what's called the yiktal tense. And it means to, to be, you're, he's being provoked to, yo, to loathe. So he's not saying that, he, that it's in his character to loathe. It's not saying that, you know, he just decided randomly that he would loathe these people. What he's saying is that their actions continually stirred up this emotion in him because they continually refused to believe. They continually refused to have faith and to trust God. Although they saw all that he had done, although they were witnesses to all he had done, it was kind of like, yeah, that's great, but, but what do you have for me now? What have you done for me lately? And he'd say, well, I did this, this, and this lately. And they say, yeah, but, but what about now lately? They just refused to believe. So for 40 years, he loathed that he was, he was provoked to loathing that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So what provoked his loathing? It was going astray in their heart. Your actions flow from your heart. And your actions reveal your heart. The Israelites, that that generation, their inability to trust God revealed a hardened heart towards God. So where is your heart? Does your heart crave an intimacy for God? Does your heart trust God, or are you constantly building up walls against God? 
Are you constantly trying to jump through hoops thinking that if only you can do the right things, if only you have the right theology, if only I can just make myself righteousness or righteous enough, God will love me. Or do you simply believe that he is the God who created the world and you are a sheep at his hand? So their hearts, they've gone astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, because they continually revealed their hearts, that their hearts were astray, I swore in my wrath. Because they continually provoked him to to loathing and to wrath, he swore they shall not enter my rest. Now rest for the Israelites, and particularly in this generation, meant entering into the promised land. In the promised land, that he was going to take care of them. He made a covenant with them, an if-then covenant, saying that if you, can, if you just follow me, if you put your faith and trust in me, I'm going to take care of you. But if you turn from me and worship other gods, I will raise up another nation to conquer you. And their hearts were always astray. They never followed God, they followed others. They followed another master. They bent their knee to others. And they wanted to do it their way. And so what is the result is they didn't enter the promised land. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews is a great book. It's written as a sermon. Many theologians believe that it was a sermon that someone uh, copied down and then started spreading around because it was such a great sermon. Chapters 3 and 4 are all about verses 7 through the end here. They're all about 7 through 11. And he, so he's giving a sermon on 7 to 11. And he starts to give encouragement. So I want to read this sermon that is considered scripture that's about this verse because it's going to be way better than than what I can produce for you. I'm going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he had said. So how do we enter that rest? By belief. Softening our hearts towards God. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So what he's saying here is that they never truly got that rest. That's that's how I'll sum it up. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there's still rest available for us. Even though that generation didn't get to enter God's rest, we can still enter God's rest. And what is it rest from? It's rest from legalism. 
It's knowing that you don't have to strive, you don't have to work to earn God's love, but God lavishes His love upon you anyways. You don't have to work for it anymore. You can simply rest in the fact that God is the creator of heaven and earth, that He holds all in His hand, and that He loves you, and He cares for you, and He has lavished His love upon you. But Hebrews doesn't stop there. This is the encouragement that we can have that rest. But then he goes on, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Doesn't that sound so funny that we have to work to enter the rest? But how do we work to enter that rest? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. How do we work to enter that rest? I believe is found in chapter, or sorry, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How do we enter God's rest? He has laid it out for us. We go back through Scripture over and over again. And when we think we are nobody, and when we think we are too big, whether we're, whether we're so full of pride that we're puffing ourselves up, or whether we're so low down on ourselves that we think God would never love us, what we do is we return to Scripture and we remind ourselves who He has made us to be. We remind ourselves of who He is and who we are because of Him. And that is how we enter His rest. So may we be a congregation that enters His rest. That knows who we are because of who He is. May we be a congregation that when we recognize how big He is, it inspires us to have an emotional reaction where we shout to God with excitement. May we be a congregation that as we grow in intimacy, grow in humility and bow our knee to Him and say, God, not my way, but Your way. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We recognize that you don't waste anything, Lord, and that there was a rebellious generation that hardened their hearts towards you, and you used that as a lesson throughout the rest of humanity to teach us how to have soft hearts towards you, how to trust you, and how to enter into your rest. Because you have loved us with such a great love. Lord, we pray that as we get ready to worship, that we would have an emotional reaction because we recognize how amazing you are. But we'd go beyond the emotional reaction to a reaction of humility and a reaction of stopping to listen to your voice. In your name we pray, amen.